0: Welcome to another podcast. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here, as always. Uh, and we've been doing this series of conversations uh, brought to us by Nathan Connolly from Johns Hopkins University, where he's a history professor. This is a Johns Hopkins seminar on American capitalism. And um, today we're about to talk with Dr. Kaylee Haran. Haran? Haran. Uh, Haran. Got gotcha. you. Welcome. Good to have you here.
1: Thanks. Nice to be
0: here. She is a historian that focuses on the United States in America, and Willie is into an area that I never thought about, and so I had to quickly kind of read all the stuff that I found that she wrote and all the stuff on this because it never came to me about the actuarial age, about insurance and the rise of neoliberalism and its relationship to capitalism. Uh, Who knew? We know now, and welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks. So let's start here with this. I mean, so when I never... The idea that... The growth of the modern insurance industry Mm -hmm. had a lot to do with the growth of neoliberalism, the kind of pushback against socialism of the 30s that was rising, and where we are today. So talk a bit about that. I mean, that that to me is just a fascinating journey.
1: Yeah, I think um, when people talk about and think about insurance, uh, there's a tendency in the U.S. especially to uh, kind of associate insurance with finance and economics, Um, but in my research, I'm actually really interested in insurance as a social institution um, and one that uh, determines the boundaries of membership in communities um, that uh, helps people understand um, and shapes their ideas about risk and responsibility, Um, and especially um, uh, it sets the, the boundaries of who kind of participates in different kinds of communities, and so in my research, I'm interested in that specifically and there's lots of different ways that i so I so
0: it. people have sold insurance forever mm-hmm. right of one form or another
1: well not maybe not, for, not forever I'm but in,
0: in america mm-hmm, mm-hmm. since the 19th century at least is yeah. that right so how does it, how does the history of what insurance meant in the 19th century fit into where we are now
1: yeah sure so before we had commercial insurance institutions uh, there were lots of other ways that americans spread risk and shared risk so um, there's a long history of fraternal associations, mutual aid societies, um, extended family and kinship networks, um, a lot of different ways that people um, sought security mostly through collectives and uh, a principle of solidarity. Um, by the 19th century, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, that starts to be replaced by commercial insurance institutions that function um, uh, using market logics rather than ideas about, secu- about uh, solidarity mm-hmm. um, and collectives. Um, and also eventually the, the state uh, with the development of uh, the welfare states uh, in Western Europe, but also um, a limited welfare state that develops here in the United States. So the big shift.
0: Um, very limited.
1: Very limited. <laughs> but, uh, and I think it's important to understand that one of the reasons it's limited is because the private insurance industry saw the state as a major competitor in the market for security. Um, and so there, um, throughout the 20th century there has been Um, efforts on the part of private insurance companies and the industry as a whole, which acts often um, as a unified front and a unified force, uh, to try and limit the expansion of public insurance programs. uh, And also through lots of Mm. complex and interesting ways, uh, tries to um, kind of convince Americans that security is something that um, uh, is about individual responsibility Taking care of yourself mm-hmm. um, and that it's not about um, a kind of sense of interdependence solidarity collectives right which is what um, traditionally social insurance of the sort you would associate with um, a welfare state um, or a universal kind of insurance plan social insurance is again it emphasizes uh, collective sharing whereas private insurance especially the kind that uses um, uh, risk-based rating, uh, risk classifications, actuarial uh, calculations to determine who gets access to insurance and who doesn't, um, Those, uh, that kind of insurance, the private insurance we have in this country, um, actually diminishes the kind of security um, and diminishes desire for the kind of security that you could get from a welfare state or from a social insurance plan. Because
0: I think most people think of insurance as something that's just a natural process of society, mm-hmm. right? Right. Well, and w- That's what, and, and, uh, that you have to take insurance out of you if you have a car, you have your health insurance, you have death insurance, you have insurance, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so people think of it as like an, a natural, normal part of who we are as human beings. But part of what I'm thinking you're saying, at least from what I've been reading that you've been writing, mm-hmm. is that the growth of the private insurance industry in some ways was a reaction to Roosevelt and the New Deal and Social Security and this new social welfare system that was being developed. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so, well, the private private insurance industry was actually um, kind of growing pretty steadily uh, from the 19th century onward, um, uh, especially towards the end of the 19th century, where um, ideas about um, divine providence and um, other kinds of cultural beliefs made it more acceptable, especially for something like life insurance to to be bought and sold. Um, throughout most of the 19th century, many Americans believe that life insurance was a form of gambling, and it was associated with dealing in death and um, putting a price on life. I mean, that starts to fall fall away uh, by the turn of the 20th century. Um, by the time you get to the 1930s uh, and uh, the passage of Social Security and the New Deal programs, um, insurance has already kind of grown pretty. Pretty seriously, um, mm-hmm. mostly life, um, but also property casualty. Um, and I, I guess uh, an important part of the story is that during the Great Depression, um, the insurance industry fared much, much better than other financial institutions. Um, so, banks and what have you, um, a lot of them failed during the Depression. Insurance companies did not, they had very safe and secure investments. So, they because? come. Uh, because they uh, prided themselves in making investments that were long-term, safe, secure. They weren't, they weren't investing in the stock market, um, speculative kinds of things. In fact, they invested a lot in real estate. Um, well, not real estate, but in um, uh, like farms uh, and uh, things like this. So during the, the Great Depression, uh, the industry actually comes out very well, uh, but it also ends up um, acquiring a lot of land, uh, from Americans that were not able to pay their, um, pay for their policies. And so um, insurers end up kind of possess, repossessing um, farms and other kinds of mortgages and stuff. So um, insurance industry comes out of the Great Depression um, more powerful than any other financial institution in the United States and also dead set on, com- on combating the growth of the welfare state. Uh, because it was thought to be um, a major threat to private insurance, um, you have all sorts of um, folks in the industry. My favorite is Wallace Stevens, the, the great modernist poet, um, who was also an insurance executive, um, who writes these kind of um, not scathing critiques necessarily. Stevens is a little bit more um, amenable to to Social Security, but they're, they're writing these warnings to the industry, trying a sort of call to arms um, that what's going on in Europe. Is going to happen in the United States. This is their big fear. Um, uh, they call it nationalization. Uh, that the state is going to nationalize all these these companies. And so they launched this really serious campaign, um, uh, a lobbying campaign as well as marketing campaign. They they create some of the um, uh, some of the first um, uh, PR firms uh, to kind of send out this this uh, message that a private security is a form of independence uh, Mm -hmm. self-sufficiency private insurance by buying private insurance what you're doing is you're marking yourself as a um, responsible individual um, and that also you're kind of learning how to be responsible by consuming private insurance because um, it's kind of seen as an incentivizing force for you to behave more um, in a more enterprising spirit and a more safe secure um, kind of spirit Uh, and at the same time that they're pushing that message about Mm -hmm. private insurance uh, they're also um, Uh, creating materials and uh, pushing another message, which is that public insurance programs uh, are a form of dependency. And so that rhetoric, which has become very familiar today, um, actually originates in a lot of ways out of this um, attempt by the private insurance industry uh, to compete with the state as a source of
0: security. So how does that play itself out in the 21st century?
1: How does that play itself out in the 20th, 21st in, century?
0: In, now that we have, we have almost 100 years, 50 years, 67 years, where that number is, yeah. where the insurance companies have built this power.
1: Well, after World War II, the insurance private insurance industry just like expands massively. There's tons of competition between um, uh, various companies. Uh, they start uh, um, refining the risk classifications so they can compete with each other. Uh, that leads to... Um, Uh, increased exclusion of some Americans from insurance markets. Um, You get uh, uh, laws that make some forms of insurance compulsory, like auto or homeowner's insurance. Homeowner's insurance basically becomes compulsory because you need to have homeowner's insurance to get a mortgage, right? And so these are laws that um, essentially force people to buy a private product. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so that competitive risk rating that's going on within the industry um, is uh, exacerbated even further. Uh, And and what you end up having is a system where uh, the very best risks, this is insurance, lingo. Uh, the good risks uh, um, are kind of different companies compete for the good risks. And then the bad risks, in insurance lingo again, the bad risks are kicked out of the private market and then they're caught by um, the, the state, which serves as a net for those risks that are deemed um, too too risky to insure.
0: So what's the alternative? I mean, what's the alternative? And, and what are alternatives that may exist mm-hmm. in other societies that are, that are different than what we do here?
1: Well, Around the turn of the 20th century, there was an American philosopher, uh, Josiah Royce, uh, who uh, became somewhat famous for a book that he wrote called War and Insurance. Um, and this was a kind of utopian uh, um, examination of insurance. Um, and his idea was that um, all of the, the states of Europe could participate in a mutual aid co- form of insurance uh, and that they would, it, would be a mutual, it was based on mutual, mutual insurance. They would all be a part of this pool, um, and then they would share risk with each other, and through the sharing of risk with each other, they would um, be able to um, prevent famine and uh, all sorts of other uh, conflicts that cause war. Um, and not only would they be able to pay for like, you know, floods and disasters and things like that, what, they, what would happen as a result of uh, this sharing of risk was that they would be brought closer together. Um, the states of the world would be brought closer together and the spirit of solidarity and the spirit of mutual aid would actually um, further uh, diminish a desire for war because people um, and countries uh, would be looking out for each other and they would understand that they lived in a world that needed interdependence.
0: That's insurance. That's insurance. <laughs> so that, that is heart,
1: Insurance could be right. utopian. Right. Um, but in the system that we have in, in the United States, it's... Um, sometimes quite the opposite. And that's because we have a kind of public-private insurance system um, that's very imbalanced. And so um, not only do uh, the people who most need security um, end up with inferior coverage or even no coverage, they're priced out of private coverage um, and forced to, you know, kind of be caught by this, um, uh, 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 the public programs that often offer inferior coverage at higher prices. And then there's the taint of dependency, irresponsibility, these moral questions that are associated with that. Um, And also on top of that, I I really do think that the the risk pooling and classifying that um, occurs in private insurance convinces Americans that they don't need to look out for each other and that the true route to security is um, caring for oneself Individual responsibility uh, and it diminishes the um, uh, ability for people to actually feel solidarity with others uh, and to seek um, collective means for risk sharing.
0: So, what do you see as the kind of modern day political struggle around this? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, I was thinking about this as you, I was thinking about this morning. So, you know, I take out life insurance. Sure. Right? Something happens to me. How do you get to think Nobody's going to take care of my family. Or what's around me mm-hmm. unless I do it yeah I mean, that's what's happened right so what's the political movement around this I mean and it has it ever been yeah there ha- has been what's the relationship to this potential today
1: there are political debates surrounding insurance that flare up at different moments in American history um, uh, I'll be sharing a paper later this afternoon on um, Uh, A moment in the late 70s and early 1980s when um, the women's movement decided to attack the risk classifications that insurance companies use Mm -hmm. um, when they use sex. Um, Before that, there's uh, pretty substantial um, anti redlining uh, campaigns that are done by civil rights activists. Um, Before that, uh, you get uh, uh, concerns about auto insurance rates and um, who should pay how much to um, have auto insurance. Um, these debates um, arise at various moments, but one thing that, that characterizes almost all of them is that they never critique the risk classification structure itself as the sort of uh, as the source of discrimination that they're trying to fight against. Um, instead, they say that particular risk classifications are unjust or particular classifications haven't been measured accurately. Um, and I think... Um, in the future, uh, if, um, uh, you know, people who are concerned about, say, genetic testing and how that's associated with, um, uh, and how that relates to insurance or, or other, other issues, um, that learning from past debates with, uh, uh, between social activists and insurers will be important. And I think um, the, the real thing to do, uh, in my opinion, is to uh, eliminate risk-based ratings.
0: I guess, as you were saying that, what I thought about was that um, how you take that understanding
1: mm-hmm.
0: and turn it into a popular notion of what's really happening. Do I you know think I mean? it's
1: already there in health care. It's already there in health insurance. There is a deeply held belief uh, that people who are sick should not pay for being, for right. being sick. Right. I mean, certainly there are voices in this country right now. That disagree with what I just said, <laughs> um, right, right. but there, I think a majority of people do agree that something like healthcare and health insurance um, should not be subject to um, the idea that the bad risks should be made to pay and the good risks shouldn't subsidize um, the bad risks, which is the the logic and the rhetoric that the insurance industry uses. Um, and so, in something like like health, um, I think it's already there. Um, go ahead.
0: No, so the question I have just to conclude is what. So what is the alternative? What replaces this?
1: Medicare for all.
0: Is one example.
1: That's one example.
0: So when it comes to everything from... I'm I'm harking back to something that happened here in the 90s, actually in Baltimore. Um, There was a a socialist activist in town. His name was Bob Kaufman. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he fought for, and I never thought about it in terms of... It never connected these things, actually... Thinking about your work is making these dots here. He, he was building what he would be a, co- a, a cooperative auto insurance pool. Excellent. That's run by the government, city government. Fantastic. Because because auto insurance rates are so high in the cities compared to the white suburbs. Right. Or the most white suburbs at that time. So, so it's, talk a bit about what the alternatives are to the private industries that we have now, private insurance industries we have now.
1: Well, the state is obviously... Has always been one of the um, the main alternatives, um, and you know I think it's really easy when you do insurance history just sort of idealize like the massive welfare state, um, or even the kind of fraternal associations that existed um, in in the nineteenth century and early well well into the ni- into the twentieth century for a lot of black fraternal societies and associations. Um, there are also exclusions that are um, based, uh, that are sort of rooted in those kinds of institutions, but I do think that they're far less extreme uh, than what we see in uh, the, the actuarial risk-based risk, ra- risk based, um, rating structures that, that we get out of the private insurance industry. So uh, the state is one option. Uh, what you're talking about is, is a fantastic option, this idea of um, um, creating collectives and, uh, that, that share risk together. But that's so radically different than what we have now um most americans when they pay a premium on say their auto for their auto insurance they do not imagine that that premium is going to pay for someone else's misfortune and it does it's a form of redistribution that's what all insurance is um it's it's
0: um redistribution owned by a private company that makes profit off of your money
1: exactly that's exactly right, right. Um, but most people don't think of it that way, and I think one of the reasons is because the rhetoric of the industry um, has been so profoundly successful. Um, and so, yes, um, collective resharing um, can take lots of forms, and I think um, in order to, to get ourselves to a place where we're able to imagine those forms um, and to think creatively about what they might become and be in the future, I think we need to um, take a moment and look at Our situation now and how it developed historically, um, and uh, really be willing to uh, critique this industry uh, that we live with and, and um, see some of the harm that it's done.
0: Dr. Kelly Haran, it's good to have you in the studio. This was great. It was uh, great to have really this great conversation to have in the studio. Uh, Dr. Kelly Haran is here uh, in Baltimore as part of the Hopkins Seminars on American Capitalism. She's an assistant professor. In the, at the Massachusetts, excuse me, Massachusetts Institute for Technology, uh, where she's a professor of history, uh, and her book project is called Actuarial Age, Insurance and the Emergence of Neo- Neoliberalism in Post-World War II United States, uh, and we'll be linking to some of the articles she's, been, she's written and more on our website, and Kelly, good to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at marksteinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.